It's time for Cubicle Insanity. I've got Kim here with me and I'm Tammy. We're back together again to talk a little bit about which we love, corporate America. Our podcast is a discussion about the real insanity from cubicles in the workplace, from leadership and leaders to experiences with life in the cubicles. Let's get into our latest cubicle insanity. Kim, you ready? Ready. So today, we're very fortunate to be joined by an expert on leadership. One of our favorite topics, we get into it all the time, who's also an author. So we'll take a little dive into some of those key points on leadership in the book. Kim, how about you introduce our esteemed guest? Uh, my pleasure. So today we have the honor of having uh, Croft Edwards, the author of Leadership Flow, Perfectly Squared, his new book. He um, Croft is an author, as we've just stated. He's the founder of Croft & Company, which specializes in leadership training and coaching. He's also a master, for, master certified coach. And if, it, if all that isn't impressive enough, Croft is also a retired Army Lieutenant Colonel. So, Croft, thank you for your service. Oh, you're welcome. Great to be here. So, let's dive in and get to know you a little bit more. Okay. Croft, we're going to start with a, a few rapid-fire questions for you to get to, to know you. And with your right. book's focus on the Albuquerque store, I'm going to yes. have you do a few ratings for us, okay? Okay. So, on a scale of one to five stars, five stars being um, great, fantastic, um, Rate these things for us. Green okay. chilies. Oh, five plus. <laughs> uh, the Albuquerque Balloon Festival. Uh, this year was a banner. It's a five plus also. Oh, okay. Just this year, though? Yeah, well, all of them are. But this year, at, at one point, we had Darth Vader and Yoda uh, right above our house. Oh, my gosh. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, how about the TV show Breaking Bad? Uh, well, I'm only... Through three and a half seasons. <laughs> <laughs> I, I absolutely love it. But my wife, we actually are, we, all, we had a pretty big fight over it because she wanted to binge it. And she went behind my back and binged it. Ooh. And, oh, it was, it was a sore point. But, and I love the show, but it's just too intense, too much. So I'm, I'm, I'm savoring it more. So it's definitely a five, five star also. Oh, nice. I, you know, that binging is funny. I wanted to binge and my husband was like, I can't. It's too stressful of a show. I can't fall asleep afterwards. Yeah, I just need to, I need to, it, it is savory. It is, it's just so good. Nice, nice. Okay, and lastly, how about the 2.7 mile aerial tram to Sandia Peak? Uh, it's, it's a, I'm going to, I have to give something that's not a five plus. It's, it's like a four, but it can be a five depending on the day you go up. Okay. Some days it can be just absolutely breathtaking, especially if there's like a, a western sunset. Others day, other days it's cool. Um, but yeah, I, of, of all of the things I was quizzed on, I would have to give it the lowest rating, but still very, very much a to do when you come to Albuquerque. Fantastic. Okay, thank you. Um, so next, we're hoping that um, you have maybe a a, a funny. We're putting you on the spot, so uh, okay. we'll give you. I'll talk a little bit to give you a second to think about it. We like to hear um, from our various guests about any funny stories from their cubicle life. So if you think back, maybe it's one you've heard, maybe it's one you've experienced. Um, but since uh, we focus here on cubicle insanity and we've all been there and it's nice to know we're not alone, what kind of story can you share with us about your cubicle insanity? You know, I... Um thinking about that, I, there was a time when I actually worked in a cubicle. Um, I had just gotten out of the army and I started with a, uh, 
a fence company that was probably a big influence on why I went into leadership consulting because it was so bad. And <laughs> I was on this, um, we were on this transition team to roll out a computer software program, but they had no idea what we were supposed to do and no direction. And so we, uh, we spent a day one day and all we did, there, we had this uh, guy on our team, Bobby, who was just a flat out comedian. And he literally had us laughing all day long. We did nothing. And so <laughs> it was like 3.30 in the afternoon, you know, 3.29 in the afternoon. It was like, oh, dude, we, we're getting off in a minute. We got to do something. So we opened up a PowerPoint and inserted a period at the end of a sentence. Nice. So we did, say, we did something. <laughs> but nothing. But it was interesting. I was, and I think I was a really bad employee. And I got very cynical when I would be, from my perspective, mismanaged. And it used to just drive me, because I come from the military where, you know, it was very clear what leadership was and how, how leaders act to an organization that that was not clear. And so it really kind of set me up because I was such a bad employee that I really, <laughs> I, I think I have a good perspective from that side of the fence. Let's just put it that way. So, nice. But I have spent a whole day doing nothing. At least one. You know what? And, and the beauty of that is you admit it. You own it and uh, take responsibility for that, where I, I think that we all can think of people who do that every day and uh, don't don't own up to it. Oh, and I, I can honestly say I played solitaire many a day, and I got very adept at hiding the screen. <laughs> nice. When somebody was coming by. So, yeah, I've lived in a cubicle. Awesome. Okay, thank you for sharing that. So, um. One thing, you know, that Kim and I had been talking about is you've got this experience working with, you know, various leaders and organizations now. Um, so how about you kind of before we dig into the book a little bit, how about you share a story about some leader or organization, you know, that you were working with? And maybe there was, you know, a bit of a time where it was a struggle and it was hard to see the end and any success. But it turned around and, and now it's a, a great story and, and everyone's, you know, proud of what happened. You know, I, I think so many of my, I do some, a lot of coaching. And so, so many of my clients kind of fit that bill. And, and one of my, the principles that is kind of in leadership flow is, and if not the core, is self-mastery. So for me, I always really get invigorated and excited when I see a leader finally realize that they are their biggest challenge and they're also their biggest opportunity. If they can lead themselves then other people are relatively easy. So it's always, you know, getting to see the, the leader who has this huge dilemma that they haven't faced. And then, you know, to watch them through coaching evolve into a leader that actually says, no, this is what I'm going to stand for. These are the conversations I'm going to have, and I'm going to make a difference. So I get to see that a lot. I don't know if I have one specific one, but I've got multiple instances of where I could think of that. Nice. Very good. Great. So I think that feeds um, into your book really well. So one thing about your book that's different is it's more of a, a story or a, a novel versus being more a textbook. So why yeah. did you take that approach to tell a story? So uh, several reasons. Um, first was uh, one of my clients, some of the conversations that would come out was one was when I'd have them read a book, a lot of times it would be the the typical leadership book, you know, 200 to 300 pages of 
this theory. And, and one of the feedbacks I got, or a large feedback I got, was that it's boring. Right. And people go, yeah, there's interesting stuff, but geez, oh, Pete. And so there's a book, uh, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, which one of my clients read, and he just raved about it. He said two things I loved about it. One was it was a quick and easy read, and two, it was a story. So it, it was actually interesting. And so when I started thinking about this, I thought, you know what? I want a book that people will actually read. And so my kind of my criteria were I want it to be about my methodology. I want it to be a book that can be read on a plane flight from, you know, Dallas to L.A. Uh, and I want it to be a story. Ultimately, part of it was because I was lazy because I knew if I was going to write the 250-page, you know, theory of X, I'm going to have to do research and I'm going to have to go find my thing where if I tell a story – that's my story, and I don't have to get as detailed. And so yeah, I just I love the idea of writing a story, and it was it was easy to easier to write, I think, than the dry kind of academic leadership leadership books. Yeah, I you know uh, I love that. So Kim and I um, oftentimes are you know reading or you know either summaries articles or the books themselves about leadership, and and I think the ones that usually resonate more with us to your point are the ones that have the examples yeah yeah exactly and not just the ones that you know go point by point of here's how you be a good leader and in that textbook style well and, and the book is really um when i started to write it I, I didn't even tell anybody i was writing it i had i had one of my clients one of my major clients which i was doing a ton of work was in the oil and gas industry and last july two julys ago i got a phone call going hey uh Corporate-wide, we're cutting out all consultants because the market is just all over the map. And it'll be at least six, you know, six months to come back. And I all of a sudden, I went from a full calendar to an empty calendar. I said, you know what? I'm just going to write a book. And so that's kind of how it all started. And that's how I just kind of said, okay, if I was going to write, what would I write about? And I thought, I'm just going to take my clients and create a story. So it's really a montage of multiple clients. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. So um, your story, it, the premise is there is a brother and sister. Their father has recently passed away. So now they are the owners of the father's business and and each sort of has different involvement and a, and a different approach to this challenge or opportunity that has, you know, been sort of dumped in their lap. So um, I'm going to add that um, Kim and I do not want to uh, have any spoilers uh, for the book um, in today's conversation. So we're it's, going... It, it's not war and peace. <laughs> <laughs> um, so hopefully what we'll do is we'll uh, hit some highlights and leave yeah. some additional tasty pieces for everyone else to go out and uh, still enjoy and learn from the book. So um, I'm going to start with um, Mark and Jackie, who are the brother and sister, uh, sort of our, our, our main characters here. And um, as I know, as I read the book, uh, there was maybe different times where I identified more with one than the other. Um, and went yeah. back a little bit uh, back and forth. But is there one of those that you identify more with? Or is there another character that is sort of you placed in the book? Well, I, yeah, I, I kind of think the, the, the wise old sage, the, the Obi-Wan Kenobi of the book is, in theory, a little bit of me. Um, you know, because that's a role I play in a lot of organizations to come in and help them see what they're doing. But um, the the Mark character, 
was very much influenced by people I've worked with. Um, and because I've seen so many leaders that at the end of the day didn't really want to do what they were doing. And so they were, in a sense, just going through the motions, and that shows up. And people know that. I, uh, When I was working at that fence company, uh, I remember the, the owner of the company, and he was a little bit of the character is in there. Um, he had taken over the, a, a similar example. It was a family-owned business. Father started it post-World War II. And the son had grown up with a silver spoon in his mouth. And so he was going through some personal issues, and I watched him at a company-wide thing, stand up in front of him and go, you know, I haven't really been helpful. I've been kind of distant. I'm going through some personal stuff. But to, I plan on getting back and really helping the business. And, and I thought about the effect it had on people thinking, you got it rough? I'm trying to pay my mortgage. I'm trying to, you know, feed my kids. And you're sitting here talking about how, you know, this is the same guy that shows up in his course. So the, those characters are all kind of in there, and they're all um, – I see a lot of the leaders that just go, yeah, I'm just, you know, putting the eight in the gate in kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I, th I, would, I would agree with you. There's a lot of, as I read through it, and we'll get into some more of the characters that are in the book, um, where there's a lot of, oh, yes, I've worked with that person before. I know exactly <laughs> yeah. who they are. Um, well, yeah, the, the thing is, in some respects, it was easy to write because the opening scene is in a, in a Tuesday morning staff meeting. Well, everybody's been in a Tuesday morning staff meeting. And, yeah. you know, there's the person, you know, if you're a fan of The Office, you know, there's the family that's in the corner doing a crossword puzzle. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and there's, in, in every one of them, there's this, some subject that we've been discussing ad nauseum for months, if not years, and everybody kind of nods their head, yeah, 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 and nothing ever gets done. So it was kind of like th those meetings, we've all been in that meeting and sat there and gone, why did we just waste this out? Right. I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Not only have we all been there, but we've all wanted to get out of there. Yes. And I've led a few of those meetings, too. <laughs> right. <laughs> we all have. We all have. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so some of the other key players in the, in the Albuquerque store um, mm -hmm. are Cynthia and Jason and Patrick. And they yeah. all bring sort of different elements to the story. So um, you've kind of talked about that you, you brought to life some of the people you've worked with, some of the people you know. Um, maybe a little bit of yourself in some of these characters. Um, so tell us about sort of how you chose these sort of three characters to be involved because, you know, there's a whole plethora of uh, stereotypical uh, employees that could have been brought yeah. in. So give us a little bit of uh, background on why these three were kind of, kind of uh, stood out in the story. Well, you know, they're, they're the, the characters that add to the, the plot and – Again, there was, there's, uh, I'm going to keep with your guys' theme and not giving anything away. <laughs> <laughs> that are those, those people that they come in, they've got tons of potential, but the system is, in a sense, keeping them down. And the system is, we've created a culture where their energies and their initiatives just kind of get beat down. And then we have the, the, the younger players that show up that in 10 years, 20 years, they could be the future leaders of this organization. But if we don't mold them, if we don't create future leaders, they're going to end up with where they end up with, which is like the third character, which is a product of the system. 
And so he's been institutionalized. So I just gave you know two thirds of the clue away. <laughs> <laughs> but but he's been institutionalized so that he thinks his behaviors are, in many respects, they are. They're part of a cultural norm. And so he's been rewarded for these behaviors. And so in many respects, he he's forgotten how to think and how to be a leader because he's been rewarded for these behaviors. So a lot of this was just. I think I don't even know if I was conscious about it, but it was kind of like I met all of these people. Yeah. And, and and we create these organizational cultures where these people, unfortunately, this is a reality. And, and it's a reality because leaders don't say, okay, let's have conversations about how we have conversations. Let's address the moods and emotions in an organization that we live in. Cynicism is a mood and emotion. Resignation is a, a mood and an emotion. And so I always tell people the most common moods I see in organizations are resignation and resentment. And yeah. that's a shame. It really right? is. In, in many respects, you know, cubicle insanity, part of where you guys are really striking a nerve with people is this is their frustration. We shouldn't have insanity in cubicles. How would it be if we could have effective conversations, if people could really come and be wholly committed to their organization? But unfortunately, uh, there's a reason we, you know, we have insanity in cubicles because True. over time that happens. So it does. And yeah. you're talking about effective conversations. And I, I know Kim will take this and run <laughs> with it. But a lot of times the only time we talk about effective conversations is around performance reviews. And how often are those really effective conversations? Yeah, because I'm already showing up in a mood of resignation and resentment. Right. Yeah. I'm already showing up in the mood. And so now I hear my boss who I may have resentment toward. So the moment they open their mouth, it's already, you know, coming out the wrong side. So there is so much of that in high-performing organizations. One of the things they do well is they have conversations about how they have conversations, which put another way is they work on how they show up as leaders and they have conversations about how we do this. And conversations are not just words. They're moods and emotions because we address moods and emotions and their body. How we show up in our body determines what conversations we can have. It's also about having some intestinal fortitude to have transparent and honest conversations, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 And how often do we do we not do that? All the time. All the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Welcome yeah. to the insanity. So yes. um we so we have Jackie. She has been thrown into this leader role. Um her brother Mark has been the CEO and kind of taking care of things and she doesn't know where to start. So she's gonna just sort of take this time to explore. Yeah. yeah. So um, she has this lovely offer from her dad's best friend, Jim, to help her along the way and sort of help guide her. And uh, so you referred to Obi-Wan Kenobi. So here, here he comes. Um, and so she starts sitting down and, and, and learning from him sort of piece by piece, baby steps. Um, and this is where the concept of leadership flow comes in. So talk to us about um, how you came up with leadership flow and really what does it mean? Yeah, so um, great question. Uh, you kind of have to go back. So I have been interested in leadership since I was a kid. And I was eight years old or so when I read uh, the biography 
of Omar Bradley, the World War II general. And what, what really struck me at the time was not so much, okay, he did X or he did Y, but the question that jumped out was why was he effective and other people not so effective? And so that led me kind of on a path, um, went into the military, spent five years on active duty as a you know second lieutenant to a captain in the Army, stayed in the Guard and Reserve, studied it from that perspective. I have a master's in Civil War history where I studied uh, the U.S. Civil War, and I'm, I, I spent the whole time kind of looking at it from a leadership and command perspective, and then got into some deep uh, deep learning, base, basically called ontological learning, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. And so that was, I've really been studying this thing called leadership. About three or four years ago, was rebranding my company, and my branding partner said, you know what, you're a flow junkie. And I said, what do you mean by that? And the premise was, I was one of those people that I'm very passionate about stuff. In my case, it's woodworking, it's it's running, it's history, it's my family. And whenever I did something, I was all in. And as I started to, to study flow, I learned it, it, it's basically the uh, research was done in the 70s by a guy named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, which said, flow is that state of ultimate performance where we're at our best, we perform at our best. And so we really see this in extreme athletes. So I started to really see this thing called flow, and it was kind of a aha moment. And I, and I realized, what if really the goal of leadership was not to get stuff done, but rather to tap flow and to bring out the best in people, knowing that if I did that, then the results would follow. Right? Because if I go into a place and everybody's engaged, they're having fun, they love what they do, well, results are going to follow. And so it's that study fundamentally is, is bringing out the best in individuals and organizations by tapping flow through embodied leadership behaviors, which can be learned and practiced. And that's a key piece because how do I practice leadership? Well, you can practice it. And so that's where the ontological learning comes in, which looks at how we see things, specifically how we use language, how we live in moods and emotions, how we live in our bodies, and then you can practice this thing. So that's where this thing called leadership flow comes from, which is how to tap the greatness in each person. You know, I I like that explanation, and um, I think what really um, what I felt about that when I was reading the book too is oftentimes, and and you. Uh, are obviously, you know, in this great space every day and see it, you know, probably more than the rest of us. And that is, there are a lot of leader, leaders that we feel like, at least as maybe the employee sitting in our cubicles, they're not trying to bring out the best in me. They're just trying to get stuff out of me. And yeah. so the way you described flow in the book and just now, it really, it feels good. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, and think about it. How often, if, if you're, if my only job is to do monotonous tasks every day, after a while, I'm going to go, whatever. Well, when you look into flow, what Csikszent Mihai realized is that when we're at our best, the challenge we're facing is a little bit higher than our skill set. So to find flow, we have to be challenged, right? So think about it. If I'm an extreme mountain biker, how challenged am I going to be riding, you know, my bike in circles around my house? 
I'm not going to be. But a four-year-old kid who's learning how to ride a bike, that's the biggest thing ever. Right, that's huge. Yeah, so flow, we all have felt flow, but flow is that place where we find flow when the challenge is just above our experience or our, our ability level, which causes us to be in the moment and focus. And so I always tell people, like with woodworking now, I'm in a place where I can literally look at a piece of wood and the wood can tell me how to cut it. Now, if you have no interest in woodworking, you're like, who cares, right? Yeah. Yeah. But that's the, the point about flow is when we find whatever it is and we start to go to that place, now that's where greatness comes out. And how often do you see in organizations where we've got somebody who's full of initiative and then we squash the initiative? And then, you know, six months later in a meeting, you'll hear bosses talk about how that person takes no initiative. Well, duh. Right. Yeah, you've squashed <laughs> it. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yeah, you didn't and, bring out that greatness. Yeah, and so so I really look at it as my goal as a leader or my job is to find out what somebody really wants to do and help them do it, including if they want to do something that isn't involved with my company. Figure out how to link those two and say, hey, you want to go do this? I'm going to help you. Here's what I need from you. Let's figure out a way where I can get the six months you're here, I can get the best out of you. And in six months, I can say, congratulations, you're going on your journey. And everybody leaves feeling good. Instead, a lot of times what happens, I know I want to go do something, so what do I do? I keep it to myself. Yeah. I, I do the bare minimum just to show up, just to kind of go through the motions so I don't get fired. Right. Absolutely. So that happens all the time. Yeah. It does. And it's sort of like you were talking about, sort of uh, the behavior that's become acceptable, become the norm. So maybe those new hires are a little bit more excited. They want the challenge. They want to do those great things. But everybody else who's used to the norm, it's easy to suck that life out of. Yeah. And we call that organizational culture. Yeah. Right. 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 I, uh, I always, I, one of my favorite stories that, I, from, that happened to me was when I was a battery commander in, in the military, uh, I'd get a new private right out of basic training. And that person would show up and they would come to attention and they would salute, yes, sir, no, sir. And invariably what would happen is one of the crusty old soldiers would pull him aside and go, dude, you got to stop doing that. You're making me look bad. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. So the person becomes institutionalized. And right. so they go, all right, I don't have to salute. And if, if leaders don't hold the standard and if leaders don't address that, now pretty much you take that uh, bundle of potential and it gets molded into nothing. Yeah. And I always tell people, second lieutenants are a lump of clay. And in five years, that lump of clay is going to be hardened. So is the lump of clay going to be hardened into a piece of art or a lump of clay? But either way, in five years, it's going to harden. Yep. And yep. so our job as leaders is to mold that into something very beautiful, powerful, and effective. So then five years, that's our future leader. Yeah. Uh, that was that was a, a great story. Um, I So Kim and I, oftentimes when we're having these conversations, we have random thoughts. And instead of going off on tangents, we have a parking lot. So okay. Kim, um, on our parking lot, the thought I just had is... Um, we're talking about sort of, you know, that, that, that challenge for, you know, employees that, you know, makes them great, that gets them into the flow. And 
and all those things. So as Croft was talking, what came to mind is we do all these engagement surveys, engagement surveys at organizations, yeah. Yeah. and are are we achieving that same sort of greatness, that same sort of flow with an engagement survey? My gut is saying no, but I think it's something we could, and maybe Croft, you'd like to join us. We can kind of explore that one on another day. Oh, I'd love to. Okay. And my, my assessment is, no, engagement surveys just piss people off. <laughs> Absolutely. You know what? I just had this conversation the other day with somebody. So, yes, I'm all in on putting it on the parking lot and yeah. one yeah. of our next right, podcasts. But nothing really changes. Right. Right. Yeah. Yep. So I, I'll go, oh, they're going to hear what I had to say. I fill it out. <laughs> oh, and then we go and, and we go to a meeting and the leader said, oh, we're going to change. We're going to be more inclusive. We're going to be this. We're going to be that. And three months later, nothing's changed. Right. Then we come out with half-ass initiatives. Yes. Yeah. Just to get people involved to feel good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Editorial fun. Yeah. Okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go in a little bit of a different direction now, um, Croft. So in the book, um, there you, you have a uh, uh, I'm a quote from the book. Any organization's culture is 100% perfect and getting results that it's currently getting, and. So that when I when I read that, it's one of those things where it's so obvious, but you've never really thought about it that way. And in a way, and, and this kind of fits into a little bit about what we were talking about, but it fits well with sort of the old cliche of you get what you what you measure. And so you don't really talk about this in the book, but just to get your take on, uh, you know, measurements and metrics and things that organizations put in place, you know, have you seen... Um, any that actually do help influence that change in culture? Uh, they can, but it, it's, it's, it can be a slippery slope because what we measure, right, that's what we're going to see. But the, I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen people go, oh, here's how we're going to gain that, right? Yeah. So if this is what they're measuring, we're going to you know, paint all the rocks pink so that we pass that piece of the, the inspection. And so it really, again, it comes down to having effective conversations. Because when we go, oh, morale is down, we don't ever sit and actually go, okay, so what? why is morale down? And how are you, how are we going to have a conversation so both of us change the culture? I need to show up differently as a leader. You're going to have to show up differently as an employee. So if we want to change the culture, we don't change a culture by just coming in and change the culture, what happens is individuals have to change. Yep. We as individuals have to have different conversations. And the more we as individuals have different conversations and have those skills, we can, in a sense, change the culture. So uh, it's a challenge. And, and I don't know that I've ever really seen organizations do it well. The ones that I, I've seen do it well have conversations at the end of the day, face-to-face with people about what they care about. What do I care about? And if you address that, my care is taken taken care of, I'm likely gonna find flow. Yeah. Yeah. I I know Kim and I both have had this experience where there are, you know, different metrics that, you know, an organization will put into place. And some of them are around people, others are around, you know, financials or sales and things like this. And um they, it's almost like they have the number so they can sit in their office and not interact. And they can just, you know, red, yellow, green, everything, and, and try to manage that way. Versus the point you made about change really comes through those conversations. Yep. And, and I tried to kind of point out in the book that uh, if, if you're going to make a high-performing organization, everybody's got to be involved. 
And there is a concept that both Chip sent me high and then follow on research and study, which is called group flow. And to me, the best example of group flow is sporting activity, right? It's, you know, fourth quarter, your team's down by four points driving up the field. If it's a home game, you can literally feel the entire stadium come alive when your team does something well. That's, that's that thing called flow where we're all alive, we're engaged. And so if we tap that with everybody, that's how we start to have those powerful effects. But we've got to have the conversations about what people care about. Yeah. Yeah, and the energy gets rolling and it becomes contagious. Yeah. Yeah. You want to be part of it. Yeah. Um, okay, so one thing about this story um, that uh, that stood out to me and, and looking for kind of your thoughts and recommendations on this is, you know, Jackie comes into this and she doesn't have a, a defined position or title. And, you know, she's going through this sort of exploratory period. And not everybody has the luxury of not having an everyday job to do this sort of um, exploration. That You know, they still got to keep the train moving forward. So what recommendations or, or advice would you have for somebody who is in this leadership position? And, you know, they're, they're, they're reading through Leadership Flow Perfectly Square, and they want to take advantage of this, but... They have their their day job to do too. So what 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 advice do you have for them? Uh, leadership is hard. <laughs> yeah, because if it was easy, everybody would do it. But at the end of the day, it's always about conversations, right? And so the premise again. So in the book, I'll talk, I talk about this. From my background, the definition of leadership we use is leadership is the authority granted to an individual by their followers. Okay. Management is the authority granted to an individual by the organization. So management can go, hey, congratulations, Cross, you're the, the manager, right? I have authority, I can hire, I can fire. But people will only follow me, i.e. find flow, i.e. be committed, when they see in me a future that involves them, right? And so if I want to do this, if I want to make these changes happen, if I want to do this on top of my regular job, I got to find out what people need. How do I need to show up as a leader? Not how do I want to show up, right? Because if I'm truly going to be a leader, people are going to make an assessment. <laughs> you have to look no further than the U.S. to, to see this and not getting into politics, right? But one half the country thinks, Donald Trump is the greatest thing since sliced bread. The other half thinks he's the Antichrist. It's because the other half is not granting him authority to lead. One half is granting him authority to lead. So I've got to find out what my followers need in a leader if I want to make this work, which is going to take work. Right. Absolutely. So to, to kind of piggyback on that, so, uh, you know, Jackie's been spending time with, with Jim, a.k.a. Obi-Wan, and she goes in and she's going to have this second conversation with Jason. And, and Jason is our character who um, has been around for a long time. And um, one thing we haven't talked a lot about, but he does have some influence over you know, some other people because he has been there for a while. And so she's going in to have the second conversation. She's uh, better prepared for it than the first one. The, the first conversation he completely hijacks and, and takes down his own road. And so she's going back in and to talk with him 
And I think oftentimes we talked a little bit about these uh, effective conversations and, and this is one of those, what I think we often call or get trained on having a difficult conversation or having crucial conversations. And I don't know that I've taken a training in that area where it really did help me prepare that much for it. So what, um, you know, what for her, for Jackie going into this conversation, you know, what were the keys to making that successful? And, you know, what can we take away from that, you know, and apply in our, in our own cubicles? So, so much of that, and the premise is kind of in the ontological leadership realm, is first of all, most of the time when we have difficult conversations, what happens is they're difficult because we haven't practiced them. And when we haven't practiced something, what happens the first time, the second time we do it, our bodies say, I don't know how to do this. And in difficult conversations, most people get hijacked by their body, right? You get a pit in your stomach, you can't breathe, you're, oh gosh, what do I do? My thinking goes off track. Yep. So yeah. the way you do it is practice being centered. And by centered, we mean being in a place where I'm comfortable doing this. And the only way I get good at center is to practice. So to have effective conversations, I have to practice them, right? But most training in organizations is, okay, we're going to send you to this two-day class on having effective conversations. And you're going to go and you're going to sit and this instructor is going to tell you to do these 15 things, but you don't practice them. So it'd be like going, hey, I really want to get good at golf, so I'm going to go sit in a seminar for two days on how to swing a golf club. Well, I'm, yeah, it might have helped me a little bit, but the best way to get good at hitting a golf ball is to go hit a golf ball. The best way to have effective conversations is to go practice effective conversations so that I can embody how to have effective conversations so when the other person does what they do, it doesn't affect me. Yeah. So it's the old adage of practice makes or uh, practice makes perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. 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 But, but think about it. In organizations, we don't have places to practice leadership. Most of what we do is, is training. We send them to, you know, again, we send them in a classroom for eight hours on how to have effective conversations. But isn't that the most fundamental skill of a leader? Right? Absolutely. So we'll send a machinist. And they get to practice being on this machine and practice and practice and practice. But guess what? They're good at operating a machine. But leaders, we go, yeah, Croft's a leader. We made him a leader. And, okay, we haven't really trained him. So Croft is good at having the conversations he's currently having. The problem is they're not effective. So I've been practicing conversations, right? We've all been practicing conversations our whole life. But have we actually been practicing how to have effective conversations? And the analogy I use is, if I ask you guys, do you brush your teeth? And the answer is yes, right? And we, I, I practice it every day. But my question is, do you brush your teeth the correct way? And 99% of us, if we ask for dentists, they're going to say no. Right. True. Right? Yep. We practice every day, but we don't practice brushing our teeth effectively for the whole two minutes. Right. Leadership is no different. I practice having conversations. But unfortunately, I've been practicing having conversations in a mood of resentment, frustration, anger. And so that's why when I open my mouth, for lack of better words, I piss everybody off. Because I haven't learned how to practice effective conversations. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how you do it. You have to practice effective conversations. Yeah. And I'll also mention, you know, um, 
Jackie learned a little bit from her first conversation with Jason in that, you know, um, she had it sort of in a neutral territory. So there's these other things, too, that were interesting to sort of watch her work through uh, mm-hmm. to have this effective conversation. So she um, she spent the time just before the meeting going through it and, and putting down, I'll call it an agenda. I don't remember what you call it, Croft, but what are the key points to cover in this meeting? So she had it right there in front of her. She sort of reiterated it. Um, so that she could have this very effective but somewhat difficult conversation too. Well, in, in Jackie's issue in that instance wasn't Jason; it was her. Right. right. Yeah. The most difficult person you ever have to lead is yourself. So it's how it doesn't matter who the other person is. If when they show up, I my body does something, my body contracts. They actually are setting the agenda for a conversation. Yeah. Right. And think about it. When a true leader shows up, they show up in their commitment. This is what I'm committed to. And it doesn't matter what other people do because they're truly committed to what they're committed to. Most people show up and the strongest mood or emotion wins. So if we have a team and they're in resignation and that's the mood or emotion, that's actually how we make our decisions, in the mood of resignation. Because a leader hasn't showed up in a mood that says, no, 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 we're going to do this differently. Yeah, that's. I like that the strongest mood wins because it's true every time. It is. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and and you see it all the time in organizations. Um, you know, the the team's down, blah blah blah. A new leader shows up. Fundamentally, what that new leader shows up in, they're going to have different conversations. They bring different moods and emotions, and they bring a different body, and that determines now what are the new conversations that are possible. Yeah. So when a leader shows up, that's in it. By definition, how what leadership is. So it's uh, it's it's funny how you're 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 bringing this together. So Kim and I um, did a, we did a different episode where we talked about uh, a book called The Twenty One Irrefutable Laws of Leadership by John C. Maxwell. Yeah. And uh, you have actually just called out two of the points that we found <laughs> uh, very interesting that we talked about. Um, and one was uh, he says that he's been asked the question like, which is the toughest, leading up, across, or down? And his response was, leading myself is the toughest. Mm-hmm. So just to, just to your point, and, and you talk about self-mastery, that's what it's called in um, in your book, which I think, you know, is really a an interesting thing because um, I don't think that we all are aware enough of ourselves to be able to um, own up to, we might be the ones getting in our own way. Yeah. And, it, and it's difficult because, yes, and we're, we're hu- first of all, we're human. Right. Yeah. And yes. Just you know. So I, by definition, I'm not perfect. I'm not you know. So leading myself, it's every morning, right? It's that the moment my eyes open, I have a choice. Any morning could be to roll back over and go to bed. Right. Or I can get up, and I choose whether I get up and work out. I choose whether I eat healthy. I choose whether I tell those people in my life that that I love them. And every day is a series of choices. I choose whether I let certain behaviors live in my organization, right? I choose whether I reward certain behaviors, whether I punish certain behaviors. So it's my choice, and my issue is getting me out of the way, where I go, you know what, there's a behavior that is not acceptable. I'm going to have a conversation. And the conversation if is actually easy if I'm confident in having that conversation, 
Right. But most of the time, I'm not confident because I don't ever have those conversations. So I don't know how to have the difficult conversations, so I avoid them. Right. But once a year, I got yeah. into training or I did, oh, I got a certificate. I've been in difficult conversations one on one, but I don't go back and have difficult conversations. Yeah. Well, one of the quotes that Kim and I had talked about, uh, again, out of your book, um, when you're talking about um, the difference, you mentioned the difference between management and leadership and, and, and leaders. You say many are blind to how they show up. And when things go wrong, they simply place blame on their followers. And Kim, Kim and I had a little <laughs> chuckle at that because I, I think uh, in our cubicle insanity, we have both seen that several times. Yeah, I don't have a good enough team. I don't have enough resources, blah, yep. blah, blah. Yep, hear right. it every day. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I really got that from history because my, you know, I, I studied a lot of military history. And the one denominator that determined everything was leadership. And it was always how a leader showed up. Uh, U.S. Civil War, fine example, prior to Ulysses S. Grant, um, Grant was the first general that showed up and said, we're going forward. And he basically just said, this is the direction we're going, and he just kept going. Yeah. Yep. And that's how he made it happen. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so this has been a, a really great uh, conversation. Um, we really enjoyed your book, and had, there's so many. We I know we pulled a couple of quotes out of there, and and the story overall was uh, very I think applicable. So we could relate to all the characters. We could take some of the things that they were experiencing. Um, so any final thoughts that you'd like to share about the book or about leadership flow? Yeah, I think the one thing I would leave you with is we are our practices. So what we practice, we become good at. So if we practice avoiding conversations, we're good at it. If right. we practice the right. mood of resignation or resentment, we're good at it. But the good thing about that is we can change our practices. And that's why at the end it's self-mastery. If I'm not having effective conversations, my job is to look in the mirror and say, okay, I'm going to commit to this and I'm going to start practicing having effective conversations. And at the end of the day, it's always about leadership. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, um, so Croft, at the end of our podcast, we like to do what we call state the obvious. And okay. this came from, you know, Kim and I have had, you know, several conversations about how we thought something was obvious. We have a, we have a, what we thought was an effective conversation with someone. And, and we think that we both walk out of there with, with the same end game and find out that no, we each had different, uh, perspectives on that. So, um, you know, Jim says this to Jackie. Here's another quote. Two people can experience the same event, yet based on their histories, walk away with wildly different perceptions. Yep. So we like to state the obvious. So we're making we're making clear <laughs> the, the points that we're taking away from today's conversation. So um, one thing, Kim, leadership is not based on title. It brings authority based on your title, uh, but gaining followers also is, is really the way uh, one is management, one is leadership. And so we have to find those people that um, buy in and believe in that vision who will come along with us and bring life to it. Uh, another one, leadership is remembering the human element. So there are these emotions and feelings that play into this, but also that conversation. So mm -hmm. between two people having, having that interaction, um, I'm, I'm going to go back to one thing that that Croft said as well and talking okay. about flow and, and sort of bringing that home, bringing it to life. 
it's really that um, if there's a challenge there that's higher than the skill set, and that's where the greatness comes out. So mm-hmm. not only do we have to, you know, probably apply that to ourselves every day in our cubicle insanity, but even with any sort of, I'm going to call it assumed leadership based on our followers, you know, the, our pals at work, mm-hmm. to do it for them too. Absolutely. Agreed. Um, so I think lastly, you know, uh, I'm going to state the obvious. This is a perfect piece uh, of advice. And uh, this book itself, Leadership Flow Perfectly Square, for for managers, for leaders, or for, for employees that take that assumed leadership role. Uh, it's got a simple framework. It's got the great examples throughout the story that you can apply that um, to help your team or organization find their flow. Great. All right. And Plus, it references the best food ever. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Good. So, Croft, we'd like to thank you again uh, for your time. And again, the book is Leadership Flow, Perfectly Squared by Croft Edwards. You can check out Croft's website at croftincompany.com. Croft, where else can our listeners uh, find you? Uh, well, right now, uh, in a small farm in New Mexico, but chances <laughs> are I won't see you today. But uh, I'm on Twitter. I do a lot of Twitter at, at Croft Edwards. The great thing about my name is I'm the only one I've found, uh, except for my great-grandfather who's dead. And uh, LinkedIn, love to connect on LinkedIn, so reach out to me there. And uh, those two places are, you're likely to find me. All Just right. type Google Croft Edwards. All right, great. Thanks, Croft. And uh, thank you to all of our listeners. We'd like to thank our sponsor, um, the law offices of Susan L. Ward, an outstanding law firm. Go get them, Susan. <laughs> and um, also, we'd like to thank our active military and our veterans. Stay tuned for our next episode of Cubicle Insanity. <laughs>